sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friend. If there's a fundamental principle of American church-state relations, it's got to be no aid to religion. That religion stands on its own, it's funded on its own, it's not funded by the government. But that principle is up for grabs in a very significant Supreme Court case that too many people are not paying enough attention to, I'm afraid. Our guest today, law professor Micah Schwartzman, director of the Karsh Center for Law and Democracy at the University of Virginia School of Law. Professor Schwartzman, welcome to Freedom's Ring. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, for starters, you uh, filed a brief on behalf of a group of legal scholars in this case. Maybe we should start by asking to brief the listeners, who, who many of whom are unfamiliar, with the basic shoot in the case, you know, what the facts are. Sure. I joined this brief, which was organized by a colleague of mine, Nelson Tebby, and we did so because the, the case is an important challenge to our understanding of both the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment. The case involves a school choice program out of the state of Montana. Montana, its legislature had created a tax exemption program in which taxpayers could make donations to, to help fund some private school education and would receive a one-for-one dollar uh, tax credit uh, in response to their donation. And that program was challenged under the Montana State Constitution, which has a provision from the 1880s and then under a revision to their constitution from 1972, which prohibits state funding of religious education, religious schools and organizations. And the Montana Supreme Court struck down um, the school choice program and it said that the state could not provide this kind of funding to either religious schools or secular private schools. So no private schools would be able to receive funding under this program. That decision by the Montana Supreme Court was then challenged and uh, appealed up to the Supreme Court. And the question in the case, does Montana decision violate the free exercise of, of the parents who would have otherwise used those um, tax credits to make donations for religious schools and who's um, you know, or, or the parents of children who would have benefited uh, under that program and sent their children to religious schools. Well, the free exercise argument, um, to me, uh, is really support for one of my colleagues' observations that religious freedom has become entitlement, that somehow the First Amendment entitles uh, Christian people or Christian schools to get access to government funds. And that really is turning things upside down, isn't it? I think that that is the nature of the argument that is being pressed, uh, at least from the perspective of those things that the Establishment Clause prohibits the state from funding religion in this way, especially religious education. The Supreme Court has now, for a while, since at least since the court's decision in a case called Zelman, which involves school vouchers, said that states are allowed to fund uh, religious education as long as it's through what the court calls true private choice, right, through some kind of neutral voucher system. This case involves the question whether the state, if it's going to provide funding for private schools, whether it has to fund religious schools as part of a program of that. 
So the court is moving over the last 50 or 60 years from a position of no aid to religion, then in the early 2000s to a position where um, you know it, the states are allowed to provide this kind of funding, now to the point where the court might require this kind of funding. And that really is a shocking version of our conventional understanding. And it does look like people are saying under the free exercise clause, we're entitled to receive state funding, at least to the extent that the state is providing any kind of public benefit for education. You know, maybe this is too crude of a metaphor, but to me, this case is like driving a Mack truck through the wall of separation between church and state through the establishment clause. Uh, you know, certainly many conservatives uh, seem to want to demolish the establishment clause. I fear that they don't really understand the consequences of that. But is that um, uh, even remotely a fair analogy here, in your view? To the extent that the Establishment Clause was long understood from uh, from the writings of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison to prohibit state funding of religious mission, uh, especially in the context of education, we've, we really have done a 180 on on our understanding of the meaning of the clause. Or at least that's what that's what the challenge in Espinoza represents. Whether the court will complete the inversion that uh, that it's considering now, is it going to require states to engage in Funding of religion, I, you know, we're we're pretty close to demolishing the wall, as at least as it's understood with respect to the no aid principle. I do think that the wall of separation stands for some other principles too, and maybe those will have a longer life, hopefully. But that seems like where we're headed here. One of the um, one of the articles I pulled about the oral argument in this case uh, headlined Justice Kavanaugh uh, accusing these state provisions of being based in anti-Catholic bigotry. And I find that particularly troubling in this case because it's my understanding that when Montana renewed its constitution and revised it in 1972, it had the support of the Catholic Church. I would say that this argument, the Montana constitutional amendment, which prohibits funding of religious institutions and educational institutions, is um, is a result of anti-Catholic bigotry, is a very popular argument in conservative circles, um, but has um, a deeply contested history behind it. I, I think that the concerns about state funding of religion go back well before Montana's amendment in the late 19th century to the founding era. They persist um, even when there aren't uh, large Catholic communities in various areas, so they're just Protestants who are um, who are arguing about whether this kind of funding is permissible. Um, but also, there's a history that shows that um, the Catholic community in Montana um, had involvement in these uh, in these debates about um, about the provisions that are being challenged, that their voices were heard, especially um, in 1972, and that the intention behind the purpose behind the Montana amendments were not, in fact, grounded in any kind of religious bigotry, but quite the contrary. They were designed to protect religious institutions from state interference, to protect taxpayers from uh, from violations of their freedom of conscience, to be taxed to support others' religious views, and to protect against the kind of divisiveness that comes with state support of religion. Those were the conventional arguments from the founding era about why state support, state aid to religion was uh, was was seemed to be constitutionally problematic, and I think they were in play in Montana here, and that's not a source of bigotry. I mean, not not a not anything that should taint the 
the state provisions here. But that's the way the argument is being played out, I think, on the right. And if I understand correctly, a vast majority of the states have some kind of no-aid provision in their constitutions, and all of them are potentially at risk of being struck down. Is that correct? That's right. 37 states have provisions of various kinds that restrict state funding of religious entities. And um, at least the the most um, sweeping uh, of the claims among the amici for Espinoza um, argue that those state provisions are all um, born of anti-Catholic bigotry and should uh, be struck as violations of the First Amendment. It's a really um, radical kind of argument. And I, I think... Um, I don't think there's a sufficient history to support it, at least with respect to many of the state provisions that are in question, and not with respect to Montana's, which I don't think is accurately characterized as a Blaine Amendment. It's certainly not the provision in question here, which was enacted in 1972 and debated as part of a general revision of Montana's constitution. And California did the same thing about that time, which is where I am. So uh, very much concerned. You mentioned something about uh, you know, the protection of religious institutions from from government regulation, I think. I'm not sure you put it quite that way, but that the no-aid yeah. provision really um, insulates religious institutions. Uh, you know, if this principle is one of equality that, um, that the government has to fund religious institutions on an equal basis with secular ones, where does that take us? What are some of you know, are there some really significant changes that could be afoot as a result of, of that sort of principle? Oh, sure. Let me let me mention two, I think. One is that lots of religious organizations that don't want funding from the state, that think that that funding will come with strings that are going to be intrusive, are going to be pressured into taking funding because they'll be in competition with other religious organizations that are taking funding, and no one would want to be disadvantaged. That was one of the reasons right. why the state didn't fund religious organizations in the first place to create competition and, and trying to get state money. But the second is this, and it's already in a way before the court, which is that money is going to come with strings. And then there's going to be an argument about to what extent can the state condition its funding on respecting otherwise neutral conditions, including um, anti-discrimination law. So you say the state says, we'll give you money, but only if you don't discriminate on the basis of race or on the basis of religion or possibly on the basis of LGBT status. And then there's going to be a question about to what extent, you know, there'll be further exemptions uh, when when religious organizations are receiving that money. That'll be the next edge of this litigation. And, you know, another aspect here that I don't think I've discussed in a radio show is if religious organizations are entitled to funding, then your, whatever you, listener, you know, your least favored religion that you don't want to get the funding they're going to pony up to step up to the plate and ask for their fair share. So, you know, there are some very unpopular religions in this country. I don't want to single any of them out publicly, you know, but imagine your least favorite religion that you don't really think is a legitimate religion, and they're going to get some of your tax dollars too, unless the government's going to discriminate and say, well, we have some acceptable religions and some religions that are not acceptable. I think that that's right. Uh, if the rules are applied in a neutral or even-handed way, there's going to be state funding of religion that people have serious disagreements with, and in some cases they'll think that those religions are spreading hatred 
where they're spreading uh, messages that are, you know, immediately contrary to their own religious beliefs. And that's, you know, one, one source of divisiveness that comes with state support of, of religion. Um, you know, it's one thing I think that the founders uh, of the of the First Amendment, or the framers of the First, were were worried about. Um, but I think it is one implication of the of the decision that the court might make here. Well, we just have a minute left, Professor Schwartzman. Do you have a sense of the headcount on the court? I know none of us have crystal balls, but um, how many votes do you really see in play here? And you know, what's what's your sense of where the court's going with this? I think it's very clear there are four conservative votes um, to hold that the Montana uh, rule is unconstitutional and that there has to be state funding in this case for the religious organization. Um, it's clear there are at least two votes in the other direction from Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor. The votes that seem to be, I think, in play are Chief Justice Roberts uh, and um, Justice Breyer, possibly. I think here Justice Kagan is... Um, is opposed um, to the to the idea that free exercise requires funding. I think Breyer is on that side too, and so I think really this is um, this is a question for the chief. And I think you know it's likely to be five four, holding that the state here had to fund the religious organizations. I think that's what most people expect. But there was a lot of discussion at the oral argument about questions of standing. It would not be enormously surprising if the chief decided to punt on this in various ways to get rid of this case, to wait for future litigation, a cleaner decision. But um, I think the conventional wisdom uh, is probably that it's a 5-4 in favor of the free exercise claim. But, you know, it's always um, a bit dicey to make predictions about right. uh, Supreme of Court course. decisions. So with all those caveats. So yeah. this is a bit of a nail-biter. We will keep our listeners posted. We're out of time. Our guest today, Professor Micah Schwartzman, we've been talking about Espinoza against Montana. Thanks for being with us today, Professor Schwartzman. Thank you. And as we close, folks, this has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Till next week, let freedom ring.